After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but, I, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have uh, turned our attention to what you have been doing in our church the last few years. And as we near the uh, conclusion of this portion of the building campaign, and we get to, to, to move in and worship you in this wonderful facility, uh, Father, we, we want to give thanks to you. The way you have removed obstacles time and time again over the last three and a half years, the way you have taken this, this project, which we thought would go one direction in a completely different manner, and then there's COVID and all of the things that have happened in our world, and yet you have been faithful. And Lord, you've given us a, a building committee and a team that has been sensitive to your voice, and they've sought your will. They've been wise and discerning in the decisions that had to be made. Uh, they have glorified you. And Lord, we are so thankful for them and for the work that they have done. And we are so anticipate uh, getting to come together and sing and worship and teach our children and, and uh, honor you and learn and grow deeper in our walk with you. But Lord, we want this new church, this new facility to facilitate our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs into our broken world. And our community is deeply broken, Lord. And we're broken by sin, every one of us. And would you use us and would you use this facility in a way to bring to Jesus people in our community who desperately need him? Would you make us glad servants who go into the highways and byways to the hedges of our community and bring into the kingdom those that you love and have died for on the cross, Lord Jesus. May this facility ultimately not be some kind of monument to us. May it be a symbol of your love and grace, and may it point people to you, Lord Jesus. May it be a life-saving station in our community. Equip us, empower us. Only you can make this happen, but we ask you to do so through your humble children. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So this morning's passage is a good place for us to be reminded of the overall theme of the book of Luke that we've been emphasizing in this series of messages. We have a few dozen more messages to come. We're going to finish up next uh, fall 
uh, sometime probably right before Christmas. But this overall theme that Jesus is for everyone. And in this interesting story of a Gentile centurion, there are three fundamental gospel applications that I want us to derive and be reminded of from this passage. The very first of which I just kind of alluded to in my prayer that we live in a very fallen and broken world. Now, to set context, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. He is ministering in Galilee. In fact, he is center of operations. His base of operations is in this city called Capernaum, where, Saint, where Peter has a house, and probably John and Andrew, James and John and their family have homes. And it's kind of, it's on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's, a, it's a, an important area in that portion of the world. Jesus has been ministering there for at least a year, a year and a half, and his fame has spread throughout all of the area. In these opening verses, though, we are immediately reminded of the central reality of our world. In verse 2, the centurion has a highly valued or a, a greatly loved servant who is dying. Now, no doubt the centurion, who was, a, in case you don't know what a centurion, a centurion was a, a Roman military official, and he commanded uh, like a company of men, very powerful in that region of the world. He has a servant, he's died, or he's dying, and no doubt he's done everything. He's called in doctors, he's done everything that the medical profession could do. They finally have come to him and said, it's no use. Everything we've done, it's not working. He's at death's door, it's just a matter of of ours, and he is absolutely desperate to save his friend from death. And so immediately in these opening verses, we are reminded of the fallenness, the brokenness of our world, because like that centurion servant, one day each and every one of us, unless the Lord returns first, will face death. Sin has just devastated our world. We find in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that the Apostle Paul writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You know, recently, back, I think it was in November of, of 2022, I read of a conference in Gestad, Switzerland. And this was a very private, elite conference. The only way you got through the doors was if you were essentially a multi-billionaire. You couldn't just be a millionaire or a billionaire. You had to be a multi-billionaire. And you had to, to have a track record of investing in startups and, and different endeavors. This conference was being led by scientists and biotech companies whose emphasis is longevity, increasing the lifespan and the quality of life for people. Now, you have some on the way out fringes that are like, you know, we're going to freeze you, cut your head off and freeze you cryogenically until, you know, demolition man is brought out of his cryostate. And, you know, you have those wackos. But these people aren't really looking at that. They're looking at, hey, I think that we could live to 120 and have a good, healthy life or maybe 130. At that conference, you would have people who said, you know, maybe like Abraham, we could be 140 years old. And so, interestingly, these tech titans, a lot of the, you know, uh, Zuckerberg and other of, of, of that ilk who were at this conference, they all are on certain exercise regimens and diets and You'll see many of them walking around with a little, or they have in their pockets, patches of, or packs of supplements and pills. They're buying into this. They're investing 
millions and even billions of dollars into this endeavor. And so here they are, hoping that they can live to 120, 130 and have a great life. Good for them. They're still going to die. They're still going to die. Because the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9 tells us it is destined for a person. This is our destiny. It is destined for a person to die once. Not come around again and again and again like reincarnation. It is a destined by God for a person to die once. And after this, the judgment. Church, we live in a fallen, broken world. This is the central reality of our lives. That's the way it is. Secondly, our world's most basic um, religious and moral presuppositions are wrong. We have a, an incredibly surreal scene in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Did you catch that? Think about what's happening here. This guy is a Roman centurion. In other words, he, is one of, he represents the military political powers who have defeated and occupied Israel. He is their military overlord. He is a Gentile, which, as you know, Jews, especially at that time, despised Gentiles. Even being around them, touching them, eating with them, made you ceremonially, religiously unclean. So here you have this man who, for every kind of criteria, is to be despised by the Jewish people, yet the rabbi of the synagogue in this town, the, the, the president of the synagogue, the elders of the synagogue, and the political elders of this city have all gone to Jesus, and they are pleading with him. They're begging him. They are lobbying Jesus. Would you please come to this Gentile Roman centurion's house and heal his servant? Totally surreal. Unbelievable. Why? Well, we find out that they really respected this guy. For example, he built their synagogue. Nothing like a building campaign contributor to get a little extra help from the, from the, 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 the building's uh, founders and presidents and all that. They come on his behalf, and they say, would you do this? He's benevolent, he's kind, he's helpful to us. Uh, it's uh, archaeologists, by the way, just side note. Archaeologists have unearthed in Capernaum a synagogue from like the third century. And as they did this, they dug down deeper, and they found the foundation to the previous synagogue which dates back to the time of Jesus. It's very possible that archaeologists have uncovered the foundation of the synagogue that this centurion built. He's a good man. He's important to them. He's kind of like maybe Cornelius in the book of Acts. Remember that, that centurion? Peter goes into his house. That's where the, you know, the sheep comes down with the animals while we can eat shrimp and pork today because of that whole story, right? And, and that centurion was described as a God-fearer. So uh, like that Cornelius, it seems like this centurion, he respected the Jewish people, their nation, their history. He admired their faith. Like Cornelius, it's very possible that he was even praying to Jehovah because of his admiration for the Jewish people. So even as a Gentile centurion, these Jewish leaders said, Jesus, he is a good man. He needs help. Would you come and help him? And they plead with him and 
What's interesting in that plea to Jesus is how it reveals humanity's default religious and moral beliefs. Listen to what they say. They pleaded with him earnestly. They begged him, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. As Philip Ryken writes, the elders were thinking in terms of merit. They believed that someone who lived a good life was worthy to receive blessing. This is the way most people think. It is the basic presupposition of our fallen nature. From a human perspective, the centurion is a good man who had earned the right to be blessed by Jesus, to have his attention, to have God intervene in his life because of all the good he had done. But church, this is not how God operates. Even those who seem to deserve divine blessing and intervention don't. Our moral and religious credentials are not enough to earn God's blessings. Let let me put it like this. Everyone hear this little simple sentence. (laughs) Being a good person is not good enough. Being a good person is not good enough. God's standard is perfection. His standard is perfect obedience to his law, which none of us, no human being apart from Jesus has ever accomplished. We all fall short. As he says in the book of Romans, as God looks at every, all of us, all of humanity, including us, his verdict is there is no one who is righteous No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every society's religion has an element of uh, earn God's favor by being a good person. Earn God's favor by our good works. Even the Jewish religious leaders who had come to Jesus had distorted the law of Moses and created a works-based religion. But the gospel that Jesus brings to us says that our inherent desire to rationalize why God should bless us because we are so good, that inherent desire, that intrinsic drive to self-justify why God should let us into heaven for all of eternity, all of those desires that are inherent within us are actually a manifestation of our sin nature. All of that self-rationalization and self-justification and self-satisfaction and self-reliance in this realm of goodness and how we look at ourselves is a deceptive manifestation of our own sin nature. For as Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it is by God's grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not something that you can take credit for. It's the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. None of us can boast. Church, we live in a fallen and broken world. And our world's most basic religious and moral presuppositions are wrong. Final 
gospel application this morning. Salvation and restoration only come through humble repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, this second half of the passage, we need to do, kind of read between the lines. There's some gaps here. So, uh, you know, these guys, they, the, the leaders come to Jesus and they beg Jesus to come. And, and Jesus agrees to come. Apparently, once he agreed, a, a messenger ran back to the centurion and said, Jesus is coming. He's, he agreed. And in that interval, something incredibly important happens while Jesus is making his way to the centurion's home. Verse 6, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, there's some debate about this verse. Some say that the centurion was being culturally sensitive, understanding that if Jesus came into his house, the very religious leaders who had pleaded with him would now look at Jesus as being unclean, having socialized with Gentiles. So they would turn it back on him. But I think something else is going on here. That's a possibility. There's something more profound. The centurion, he has evaluated himself in comparison to Jesus, and he's humbled by the conclusion. You look, look at the very personal nature of what he says. I think this is what is critical. Lord, do not trouble yourself. And then what does he say? For I am not worthy. What did the Jewish leaders say? This man is worthy of your help. And what is his own self-assessment now? I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. Now, let's, let's, let's put this all, try to put it together. Sometimes when we come to, to stories like this in the Bible, we, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us fill in gaps. To imagine ourselves, if we were in that situation, knowing how God works through his word, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, Let's then we can see what is going on with this guy's life. This man, he's desperate. He's heard of Jesus. Jesus has been doing all of this ministry in the area. His fame has spread everywhere. But now his friend, his servant is about to die. And he's been told by the doctors he can't be saved unless something miraculous happens. And he remembers Jesus, who he's heard about. Maybe Jesus can help my friend who's in the clutches of the greedy hands of death. And so he sends for him and he gets the good news. And now he's waiting for Jesus. And as he's waiting and he's thinking about all of this, he's realizing, you know, my friend is going to die and only the doctors can't heal him. I need something miraculous. I need divine intervention. Only God has the power over life and death. Only God has the authority over life and death. Only God can heal my friends, my friend who's sick like this. And Jesus has been healing people like this all around the area, which is why I'm calling him. How is it possible for Jesus to heal my friend who is at death's door when only God has power and authority over life and death? How can he even do this? Oh, Jesus is God walking among us. Church, 
When God opens your eyes to who Jesus is, this shakes you to the very inner core of your being, doesn't it? I mean, those of you who have experienced this act of God's grace, it doesn't take a big jump to understand what's happening in this centurion's life right now, what he's going through. I mean, the synapses in his head, they are all firing off every single cylinder because the Holy Spirit is opening the eyes of his heart and opening the ears and his understanding and helping him to see the truth about Jesus. And in this moment, he is overwhelmed with awe and wonder about Jesus. And then he's stricken with the realization of who he is in comparison to who Jesus is. When that happens to you, we can understand why all of a sudden he's like, you don't need to come to my house. You, you can just say the word. You have power over sin and death. I mean, think about maybe what he's thinking in his head. These, these leaders, they think I'm such a good man. If they only knew I'm a Roman centurion, all the crimes and the evil things that I have done through my career, a dozen synagogues don't make up for everything that I've done in my past as a soldier representing this, this powerful people and cruel empire, Rome. I can build synagogue after synagogue, and I can't get out of my mind the things that I have done. I'm not worthy to be in God's presence, no matter how many deeds I've done. I'm not good enough to be in the presence of the Almighty. Wait a second. I'm a centurion. And I have authority, and if I want something done, I don't actually have to be there. <laughs> I just give the order, and it's done. Oh, this is good. I don't need Jesus to actually come. All he has to do is say it because he has authority over life and death. Messenger, hey, come real quick. I got a message for Jesus. This story here. It's profound what's going on. What a profound illustration of how God operates. How God gives grace to the humble person, but he resists the proud. And so he sends that messenger in verse 9. When Jesus heard the message from this messenger, when he heard the rationale of this centurion, he marveled at the messenger and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found out that the centurion's conclusions were justified. The servant had been healed with just the word of Jesus because he's the one who has authority and power over life and death because he is God himself. Well, so what? As we interact, many of us are Christians, many of us, some of us are not in this morning. How do we interact with this passage? What should we walk away with? What does this story encourage us to do? I appreciate how Kent Hughes says that this passage of scripture, this story, is just a short one, but it reveals two essential components of the gospel. Components that create a question for each of us to answer. We should all answer these two questions. Do you know who you are? 
Do you know who you are? And more importantly, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who you are? And do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who you are in your natural state? You know, the very first vow that we put up on the screen is the vow that I call, I'm a sinner. It is the vow that said with those church members that just came into people who just came into our church where it says, I am without hope apart from the saving mercy of my Lord Jesus Christ because I'm a sinner. Do you see yourself the way God sees you? Do you know and believe that you are unworthy in and of yourself? Unless the Holy Spirit, unless God steps into your life and intervenes, do you believe that you are unworthy to be in the presence of God for eternity? Do you know who you are? Do you believe that your only hope is Jesus, who has the authority over life and death itself? Or are you like those religious leaders? Are you like the mass of humanity who follows some religion or another that believes that merit, good works, is what is required? That this is how you get God's blessing. That by being a good person at the end of your life, yes, you have bad things in your life like that centurion, but your good things outweigh it, and God says, hey, come on in. No harm, no foul. Is that what you believe? To put it in the, the, the vernacular of those of us who, who needed this in our academic careers, do you believe God grades on a curve? Right? Some of us, we needed that curve, right? Some of you busted it. We never liked you. But uh, do you believe that God grades on a curve? Oh, just, just be a good person. Get close enough and you're fine. Because that's what the mass of humanity believes. And this is why Jesus says that the road to destruction is broad. It has to be to accompany all of the people who are on it. Is that what you believe? Is your opinion of yourself based on what you say about yourself? Or is your opinion about yourself based on what God says about you? May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to answer that question accurately. Lord Jesus, thank you for this simple passage that reminds us that you are for everyone. You're for the Jew. You're for the Gentile. And all of us in here, most of us are Gentiles. We are so thankful for this. But Lord, specifically this morning, I'm praying for the person whose eyes maybe are just opening or have not been opened as to who they really are and their condition before you. Would you remove the blinders? Would you remove the self-deceptive gauze that is over their eyes that causes them to see themselves as morally good and upright, deserving your blessings and favor? May we see that in ourselves, apart from Jesus being in us through your spirit, there is nothing good. We are born in sin. We need your divine, miraculous intervention in our lives. Like that centurion servant, we need to be saved by you because we are perishing the moment we are born into this world. And so, Father, for the one who is perishing this morning 
who's yet to experience your divine saving grace, would even today be their day of new birth. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.